are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is BaptistChurch.com. Now I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of James. The book of James chapter 4. And we're going to pick up at verse 7 today. Now we've been talking about John, I'll need you to go back maybe and change the previous title because we've gone back to that title, Principles That Will Revolutionize Your Life. Now, you might call this part two, maybe part three, but these are principles that can revolutionize your life. Now, remember, we've said this, James gives us, and everybody look this way, James grew up with Jesus. Think about that for a moment. He was the older brother of Jesus. I mean, he was the younger brother of Jesus, just under Jesus. Jesus was his older brother. So James is a unique individual in the New Testament. And and James here, in James chapter 4, verse 7, is giving us nine commands, imperatives, or principles that I believe will make a difference. Now, let me say this, and I wrote it down. These are not suggestions that James is making because you have a free will. This is not something that entitles you to kind of pick and choose what you're going to do or how you're going to behave. These are principles or commands that I believe can change your life and mine. Now let's look at them. James chapter 4 beginning at verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God, that's one. Resist the devil, that's two, and he'll flee from you. Come near to God, that's three, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, that's four, and purify your hearts, that's five. Okay, now, we're picking up today, now watch this. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, and your joy to gloom, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's eight. Now, number nine, brothers, do not slander one another. That's, that's, well, that's number nine. Okay? Let's pray again. Lord, we love you. We give you glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now, again, these are nine principles that will revolutionize your life. Now, everybody look this way. If you want God to bless your life, if you want God to do great things in your life, then you and I are going to have to implement these nine principles into our life. We're going to have to live by them. Okay, if you understood that, say amen. Amen. Now, number one, what's the first thing above everything else? Submit. The Greek is hupotasso, That means fallen rank. I heard Billy Graham telling this story. He said that a full bird colonel came into the mess hall and put flowers on all the tables in the mess hall. He left. A little while later, uh, a sergeant came in there. Well, the colonel didn't do it. He had the private do it. So the private, under the colonel's instruction, put flowers on all the tables in the mess hall. A little while later, a sergeant came in, looked at those flowers, grabbed up one of them, looked at the private and said, who the blankety-blank said, put these blankety-blank flowers on these tables? And the old private was shaking, kind of scared. He looked at the sergeant and he said, well, the colonel asked me to do that. 
And the sergeant looked and said, don't they look pretty? You see, immediately rank defines everything. So when you and I submit, we're recognizing that we're falling under the leadership, the lordship of Jesus Christ. We know our rank. We're privates in God's army. Secondly, resist the devil. Thirdly, draw near to God and what? And he will draw near to you. You draw near to God, God draws near to you. Just like the old man said when his wife complaining, sitting there in the pickup truck, and she was smashed over on the passenger side, up against the window. She began to talk about how years ago, how close they were, how loving they were, how affectionate they were, and all of a sudden the old man looked at her and said, I ain't moved. You see, God doesn't move you and I do. So draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and David Jeremiah says this in his book. I think it's good. He said, renounce sinful practices. That's what that means. Cleanse your, hands, cleanse your hands and purify what? Purify your hearts. And that comes through what? Through obedience and confession. You and I are confessing when we disobey God. And in, in that way, we are purifying our heart. Now, in verse 9, picking up at verse 9, watch this. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. So grieve, mourn, and wail. Well, that's strange. What does that mean? What is that principle? Number six, we react to sin, listen, with sorrow. In other words, we react to our sin with sorrow. What James is saying there is imperatives. Again, these are commands. Grieve, mourn, and wail. I remember my dad years ago when I'd kind of be pouting, not be in a good mood. Uh, dad would look at me and say, Son, if you don't cut that whining, I'm going to give you something to whine about. You ever thought about that? You ever think sometimes how much we pour mouth? But the problem is, is we don't grieve, wail, and mourn over the right things. One writer said this, some of us, we're ungrateful, we're moaning all the time, we're moaning over the wrong thing, rather than our sin and rebellion and our disobedience, we tend to moan, wail, and mourn over stuff. And that's true. Let me ask you something, I want you to think about this. When was the last time you cried over your sin? You know, I, I had a man who used to share the platform with me, and, I'm, and you know what? I wanted to, I've often wanted to write him and to say to him after he left this church, I'm not talking about Reggie. I often want to say to him, you know what? In all the years I've been your pastor, not just in this church, you never one time complimented one thing I ever preached, but you continually came to me anytime you disagreed. You know, the reality is, is sometimes we judge everybody else but ourselves, right? Let me ask you again the question. When was the last time, when was the last time you cried over your sin? 
I mean, you dropped to your knees and you wept before the Lord because there was an area of willful, defiant disobedience to God and the only thing that you could do was get on your knees and ask God to forgive you. Grieve, well, and mourn. I don't think we need to define it, do we? Do I need to find it? Define it? Do I need to go into the Greek? Years ago in Zimbabwe, we uh, were out in Chitanguiza. And in Chitanguiza, a lot of times I would pull in to Chitanguiza and I would be faced with a death. Now, let me explain this. You didn't have funeral homes. So in other words, you had a wood box. You had a dead man or woman. I loaded that in my vehicle and I packed it full of men and women who literally had no way to get to the cemetery except we ride together. I had my vehicle one time with 14 people and a coffin slid up in it. And when you pulled up to that township, you would see a line of groups, one group after another. You'd see a line of graves that were dug one grave after another, and I would dread it. Because as we got out of that vehicle, you could hear the mourning, the wailing, just the grieving and the sorrow. It would just fill the air, and you would feel it just almost seeping into your soul. And you would stand with a coffin and a group and a line waiting to get up, to put your person in the grave, to physically finish out that grave, and then to leave. The, the grieving, the welling, and the mourning, I hear to this day. And we think we have problems. You know, what is this process? Take... Take a, uh, take a left and go over to Romans chapter 7. What does this mean? Look at Romans chapter 7. Real quickly, Romans chapter 7, beginning at, uh, beginning at verse 14. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul. Now, I want to read for a moment Romans um, chapter 7, chapter 7, I think 14, beginning at 14 through uh, chapter 8, verse 4. So Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 14, listen to what Paul said. He said, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. You there? Are you there? I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. 
For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Wow. You hear Paul? You ever, you ever there sometimes? You ever walk out of this church and you think, man, I feel like I'm on top of the world. And by the evening or by the next morning, you're caught back up in some of those habits, some of those addictions, some of those sinful strongholds in your life, and you're sitting there and sometimes you just fall on your knees and you look and say, God, the things that I want to do, I can't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Oh God, oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? from this body of death. You ever been there? When was the last time you weeped over your sin? I can tell by the looks of some of you, you don't even care. You see, the reality is there's a principle here. We can't celebrate Christ until we understand our condition. We can't celebrate Christ until we understand our condition, until we understand our sin. I, I can't celebrate being saved if I don't know what I'm saved from. That's what Paul was saying. One writer said, In the grieving process over our condition will continue until the day we exchange these fallen temporal bodies for our glorified body. Wow. Right? Dr. Habert, in his commentary, and again, it's an extensive scholarly work on the book of James, states three aorist verbs here. Grieve, well, mourn. Now, what is the aorist tense? We have a hard time with it in the English, but it basically is a past, listen to this, it is a past action which could have happened just once, or it could be an action that's continuing. In other words, the aorist tense of the verb means that grieve well and mourn. This happened one time, or this is something that not only happened one time, it's been happening all along. Let me tell you, listen to what one writer said. It happened once when you got saved and hasn't happened since. You came down the aisle repentant and broken. You gave your life to Christ. You wept, you, 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 you wept, you mourned, you, you grieved. But it hasn't happened since. Let me ask you again, when was the last time you cried over your sin? 
I'm not talking about your husbands or your wife. I'm not talking about your child or your grandchild. I'm talking about you, me. Dr. Haber went on to make this statement about these three aorist verbs. These are imperatives, commands. He said they unite to form an urgent demand for open and thorough repentance. The intensity of the, man, of the demand is startling, intended to shake these double-minded believers. What's going on in the heart is expressed through mourning and wailing. When I did in, in uh, 2001, I preached the Mississippi Baptist Convention sermon. Back then, that's been 22 years ago, this, this past November, um, First Baptist Church Jackson was packed. It was full. I wasn't long preaching the message before the Baptist bookstore exhibit emptied. People came into the sanctuary. Nobody went to the bathroom. Nobody got up. There's dead silence. As I confronted Mississippi Baptists with what was happening in the city of Jackson, we were systematically removing our churches, either closing them or relocating them. And I said, it is wrong. You are turning this city over from, the, from a, a commitment to Christ, you're just turning it over. You're relinquishing it. You're giving it up. You know what was happening in that sanctuary at First Baptist Jackson? You could hear groans. You remember that, Sheila? People would groan. Why you groan when you're hearing the truth? It's the most requested sermon, as far as I know, by the people who do the tapes. It was the most requested sermon they'd ever had. But let me tell you what happened. We turned it over to a committee and a chain of command, and that killed it. And now, 22 years later, we live in one of the most dangerous cities and one of the most unchurched cities in the entire SBC, Southern Baptist Convention. You see, this grief that James is talking about, it cannot be concealed. Can't conceal, you can't conceal it. But when was the last time your sin brought such a reaction? When was the last time you cried tears? Let me tell you something about counseling. I want you to listen to this, just in case you're ever in this position of counseling people. When you're counseling somebody, even now what I'm seeing... When you're counseling and you don't see tears, that's a big indicator to a counselor. Sheila and I, we were doing an event, and in the event, I looked at her at some point, and I, I looked at her afterwards, and she said, something is wrong with you. I said, did you notice that that individual was never cried, never one tear? It says volumes. You see, because there's something freeing about tears. And that's what James is saying. In fact, I don't have time, but in Luke 22, 54 through 62, Luke 22, you can look at it later. In Luke 22, beginning at verse 54, Peter denies that he knows Jesus. You remember that? He said, I don't know him. 
Somebody pressed it. I don't know him. Somebody pressed it and finally he said, listen, I don't blankety-blank know him. He went back to the old fisherman. That's why Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you come through this, strengthen your brothers. But you know what the Bible said? That Jesus told Peter, after he warned Peter, and Peter didn't listen. You remember Jesus said, Peter, listen, before the cock crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. You know what happened? I don't know him. I don't know him. I blankety blank don't know him. And about that time, the cock crows the second time. The Bible said that Jesus and Peter, Peter caught eyes. Jesus was looking at him in that moment. And the Bible says that it broke Peter. And guess what he did? Listen to this. He went out and he wept, the Bible said, bitterly. When was the last time you wept over your sin? You know, most of us are so narcissistic and self-centered, we don't even think about that anymore. We're worried about everybody else's sin. You see, the level of remorse for wrong committed against another is critical to the one who's being hurt. Let me read that again. The level of remorse, grief, for wrong committed against another is, com is critical to the one who's being hurt. Let me give you an example. I wrote this down, so I want to get it right. Suppose someone hits your car. In other words, they park next to you. You've got, a, you've got, a, you've got your car. They, the wind grabs their door, hits your side of your car, and they come in, they look at you, and they mumble some superficial apology and go on as if it really didn't matter. Now imagine the same situation, but instead this person comes in, they look at you, tears start filling their eyes, and they said, listen, I know how much you... Hey, Marge! There's not a car cleaner on our lot than Marge's. Marge loves that vehicle. She takes pride in that vehicle. Imagine you pull up next to it, the wind grabs your car door and slams and dents her vehicle. And you walk in and you just kind of, hey, Marge, I, I, I just want you to know if the wind caught my vehicle, hit your car, you got dent in the side of it. Everybody in this room, it would bother you, right? But imagine you came in and you, you tears pulling up in the corner of your eyes and you look, and Sheila's looking at Marge and say, Marge, you'll never believe that I pulled up and the wind grabbed my door and it swung and hit your vehicle and Marge, it left a pretty good dent in the side of it. Marge, I'm so sorry. And she begins to cry. She's feeling, I want you to listen to this. This is critical. If you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. In fact, I need to know you're listening. Say amen. amen. Say it louder. Amen. Marge is looking at Sheila. Sheila starts to cry. And Sheila says, you know, Marge, I know how hard you work. And I remember when you bought that vehicle, and I know how much that vehicle means to you. It gets you to work. It gets you here on Wednesday nights. You keep it clean. You take care of it. Some of you don't take care of what God's blessed you with. That's why your junk's always breaking down. Because that's about how you treated the blessings of God. But Sheila is so upset that Marge is no, listen, 
She's no longer worried about the dent in her vehicle. She now looks at Sheila and she's trying to comfort Sheila. Let me ask you something. Who's, when, you, when you sin, who does it hurt? It hurts God. His, his son paid for your sin. He picked up the tab for your sin and for my sin. When you and I sin, let me ask you something. Could it be that the level of grief, remorse, regret, conviction, tears that are shed be so overwhelming to God that rather than dealing, talking about the sin, God turns to comfort his child who's grieving that deeply over it? Does that make sense? When was the last time that God wrapped his arms around you and said, hey, I love you? It's all right. My son paid that penalty and I can tell that you're convicted and you've confessed it to me. Now I'm faithful and just, I'll forgive it. When was the last time he cried over your sin? You see, that's what James is saying. Now watch what he goes on to say. He doesn't just say that. He says, grieve, mourn, and well, change your laughter to mourning. Go back to the previous example. Let's say Sheila hits Marge's car, wind catch, catches her door, hits her vehicle. She comes in and says, hey, Marge, hi, uh, you'll never believe it. I got out of the car and the wind grabbed it, wham, hit your door, left a dent the side of it. But it really doesn't matter. I know you can take care of it. You got insurance. And <laughs> it goes right on. Now, I can tell by Marge's demeanor. There's a whole, hey, Marge was about to cry a minute ago over Sheila. Now I can see an entirely different countenance. You see, the reality is James is saying this. He's saying that if we're not careful, we have a tendency to play down our sin. It's not a big deal. Let me, let me give you some things that I wrote down. We have a tendency to treat sin too lightly, even to laugh about it. That's what Warren Wiersbe said. So I wrote these things down. This is what I hear. Well, boys will be boys. Well, you know, kids are going to do those kind of things. Well, you know, dad and mom are just who they are. They're stuck in their ways. Well, it's the culture we live in. Well, you know, you just got to sow your wild oats. Well, you know, in that particular profession principally government, politics. Well, that's or car salesman. Well, that's just what you have to do to survive in that kind of business or profession. You ever heard that one? Politics are crooked, and that's what you have to do to make it in Washington or in Jackson or in wherever. Or everyone's autistic. You ever notice how everybody's autistic now? For everybody's special needs. Or it's mom and dad's fault. It's how I was raised. I was raised this way. Just the way I am. Well, he's just tired. She's just tired. She didn't mean anything by it. No, he or she is a sinner acting in an unchristlike way. No, you are rude and disrespectful. You are not a nice person. No, the truth is you're a spoiled brat who is used to getting your way and making everybody else walk around on pins and needles. No, you're lazy, self-centered, narcissistic, and expect everyone else to pick up after you. 
I got more. Well, you don't know what I've been through. Because that's what some of you think. Well, you don't know what I'm going through right now. You don't know what I've been through. Stand in line, let me grab a burp cloth and you tell me. Because let me tell you something. Everybody in this room has gone through loss. Your parents died. My mom died to one of the most horrible diseases you can ever die of. And that's throat cancer. You have, you have somebody with special needs? I know, I grew up with one. You have autism in your family? We do. You have cancer? We've had it. You've had tragic deaths? We've had it. I got a niece right now who's going to the crime where her husband shot her sister. Everybody in this room has suffering. But your suffering never entitles you to behave in an unchristlike way. It never, it never gives you the, uh, the ability to excuse it. Habert in his, in his book says this is allowed, this, this laughing, it's a loud, unseemly gaiety as pleasure-loving friends of the world. He went on to say these are professing believers who have run with the world for so long they make light of it, they laugh about it. You ever seen those kind of people? Well, I'm a Christian, but I guess I'm just, no, you're not. You're either not a Christian or you're out of the will of God living in defiant disobedience of the word of God. Sometimes we need to quit making excuses for people who profess to be Christians, yet are rude, disrespectful, and in many cases are bullies and call them what they are. Some people laugh and say there's nothing funny about what you're doing right now. It's disrespectful and it dishonors Christ. Some of us need to get a little backbone, Christ-like backbone, and look at somebody and rather excusing their behavior, look at them and say, no, that is not Christ-like, that is wrong, it's disrespectful. Because the world will do it as long as you let them. Corinth took pride in their liberalism while a man was living with his stepmother. Paul said they seemed to take light of it. You know what's interesting? These words here, laughter, Change. Do you know there, these two words are used only this only one time in all the all the New Testament, all the Bible? Isn't that interesting? Again, one writer said this is this is a powerful. The grammatical structure points to a force outside of ourselves producing the reversal. Instead of laughter, we're warning we're wanting to mourn. Because the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the body of Christ are all working together to say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. You know, Sheila asked me something here recently. I hate to even tell you what it is. She asked me not to cuss. Now, before you get on your little judgmental, narcissistic bandwagon, start looking at my sin, Sheila said... I know they're not maybe big words, but you say crap. You say ass. Now, I could defend that by saying, well, God told Hagar that Ishmael would be a wild ass of a man. 
But Sheila was right. And I was wrong. What she was saying is, there, I know sometimes you're upset, or I know even you use it as a shock effect when you're talking to people because you're a minister. She said, but I wish you wouldn't do that. She was right. I wrote this down. The change will come as the Spirit wrought's conviction the Spirit seizes us with conviction. Our laughter turns to mourning and produces within us a joy that turns to gloom and it's only used here in the Bible. She was right. Chuck Swindoll said this, this kind of intense godly sorrow grows out of a deep awareness of sin. And then I put the problem is too many of us silence the Sheila's in our life who confront us with something about our personality that needs to be changed. No, you're not overworked. You're mean. No, you don't have too much on you, which you put on yourself. You're just impatient, unkind, disrespectful. No, you're not tired. You're not tired. You're just an unkind Christian who's wrong. You remember what I asked you? When was the last time you cried over your sin? Truth of the matter is, my grandmother said it. She said, you know, most conversions today are gum-chewing, walking down the aisle as if I'm just putting my name on the membership rather than people welling and coming to terms. Well, number eight, humility. And I know we don't have a lot of time, so you, he says, I know we don't have a lot of time. Grieve, mourn, and well change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. You know what Chuck Swindoll said? He said, this is saying uncle to the Holy Spirit. You remember out on the playground when kids would be wrestling and finally one kid would get the uh, upper hand and get the other kid and put his, hold his head down, smashing his face down into the grass, holding him there. And what is he telling him? Say what? Say what? Say uncle. Say uncle. And, 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 and you continue to stay with your face smashed down into the grass until this bully is going to hold you there until finally you submit and you finally say, uncle. And then he gets up. He may laugh, but he gets up. And what that means, quit fighting and give up to the force that's pinned you. Let me tell you what the Holy Spirit will do when you and I bring a le level of measure of sin into our life. The Holy Spirit will continually try to change the lightness, the levity, the laughter into welling and mourning and grieving over your sin. And let me tell you, if you are laughing and making light and you just excuse your sin, let me tell you, you are, all, you are as far away from Christ almost as if you were not saved at all. That's it. He says, humble yourselves. You know, free wills all the way through there. Humble yourselves. Purify yourselves. 
Psalm 149.4 says this, For the Lord takes delight in His people. He crowns the humble with salvation. You can't be saved without humbling yourself. You can't experience sanctification without humbling yourself. Why? Because humbling is part of God's will for your life and for mine. Proverbs 3.34 says He gives grace to the humble. Ezekiel 21.26, He exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. Jesus in Matthew 23, 12, For whosoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Chuck Swindoll went on to make this statement. He said, if you live your life fighting, meaning fighting the Holy Spirit, you'll end up on the ground, and over a lifetime, young people, listen, you'll end up eating a lot of grass. Wouldn't you prefer surrendering to the one who promises to lift you up, which it will be, um, which will it be, a mouthful of grass or a life of grace? And the last imperative, and I've got to get it, is slander. Number nine, don't slander. You see it? Verse 11, brothers do not slander one another. You know, the, the word slander is diabolos in the Greek. Satan is, Satan is called the slanderer, diabolos. Dia is the, is the idea of through, and balos is the idea of throwing through. In other words, Satan is diabolos. He is throwing through. He's throwing slander at you and I. Now listen, everybody listen closely. You and I never look more like the devil than when we're slandering and gossiping. Now, Junior, I put, this invita I put this illustration in for you. And we're going to close in a moment. But Junior, you know in wrestling, tag team, right? Where's your belt, man? You didn't bring your belt today? Okay. Uh, okay, he's got his money. Okay, sir. Okay, now you know in, in wrestling, sometimes there's tag team, right? Now, two people are in the rink and two people are on opposite corners, right? We all know that, championship wrestling. Now, what you have to do is you're fighting your opponent, and if you get tired or you get your opponent to a certain, or your opponent's whooping you, you run over to your corner and you do what? You tag your partner. Junior's saying, he's smiling, going, that's right. Okay. Now, you ever seen sometimes, I don't know what it is, and I'm not going to say what I think about professional wrestling. But you ever notice that one guy's just beating the snot out of the other guy. He's kicking him, stomping him, doing all that stuff. And then the, the, the other guy wants to jump in, but he can't. So the umpire or the ref or whatever, he goes over there to calm that guy down while he's doing this. Now you got the other guy who jumps in, and he's, they're both on him, kicking him and stomping him, beating him, right? And you're sitting there, boy, you're getting mad. It's two against one. That's not right. And so, and they'll finally tag, and the other guy go over to his corner, and this guy, he's stomping and beating this man. But finally this guy gets enough, and he runs over there, and he reaches, and he tags his partner. And when the, pat, pat, when the partner comes in, what does he do? He whoops this guy, and then he whoops the guy out there on the, he, he goes ballistic on both of them. Listen to me. When you gossip and slander somebody, do you know what you're doing? You're tag teaming with the devil. And let me tell you what God's going to do. When God gets in the ring, he's going to whoop the snot out of the devil, but he's also going to give you a good discipline, a good chastening as well.
right? You see, that's what James was saying. Mark Littleton said this. He said, we speak against our brothers and sisters when we complain about them, carry stories that make them look bad, judge their motives, condemn them. Anything we say that tears them down instead of building them up is speaking against them. It's slander. And such speech is one of the most common problems among Christians today. Would you agree? You know... I've been in ministry over 40 years. And I hear people, a lot of times, there are people that are watching. They don't go to church. And you know why they don't go to church? Because they've been hurt by the church. Well, let me slap my burp cloth, burp cloth back up here because let me tell you, there's nobody in this room, nobody, none of you watching that has been hurt by the church more than I have. I've had people come into my office with a notebook, a notebook, composition book. And I'd say, Sheila, come in here. And finally, Sheila looked and go, let's leave. I've been in meetings where I've been ripped apart toward now. I'm in a denomination. They don't have nothing to do with me. My peers don't have anything to do with me. The reality is that sometimes in ministry, it costs you greatly. Nobody in this room, nobody's been hurt by the church more than I have. But let me tell you this much. I also believe these words, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, Jesus said, for so did they the prophets who were before you. Jesus said, you're in good company. To some of you, you would nitpick this sermon. You're looking for something to email me or message me or some of you, you're, you, you, that's the way you live your life. You're grading everybody. And if they don't measure up, you rip them apart and tear them down. But when you do that, you're tag teaming with the devil. There's a high cost to that. You know, Sheila, I've told her, I said, Sheila, when you die, if you die before I do, which I don't think she will, I hope not. I don't ask God for much, but I have asked him this much. After 40 plus years of being in the ministry, would you please take me first? Do not take me before Sheila. But I have told her that. I said, now let me tell you, if you do die before I do, I'll preach your funeral and the text will be, it'll be out of Hebrews, the heroes of the faith. And during the Hebrew 11th chapter of Hebrews, the heroes of the faith, it makes this little statement. It says, the world was not worthy of them. And I said, that will be the phrase that I will use of you. You've watched me beat up, ripped apart. You've watched people slander. You've watched entire denominations walk away from me. You've seen people black and white come after me. You've seen my life threatened. You've seen me go through all I've been through, and you faithfully have stood by me. The world, nor any church, nor anyone was ever worthy of you. You see, this sermon is not for you to think about nine principles or things that other people are not doing around you. 
This is a sermon and this is a passage that you go and sit down and you say, God, it's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Right? Well, let's stand. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you right now. Lord, we love you. We give you glory. Lord, this has been a very, very stern sermon. Uh, this has not been one of those that we laugh and enjoy our time in the Word. This has been a very convicting sermon. We've come to a portion of this passage to principles, dear Lord, that become very, very personal. Because if we're not careful, we begin to excuse, make light of our own failures and sin, and we diminish the sin of ourself while elevating and exalting the sin of others. We begin to be judgmental and harsh. Lord, the pastor is not on trial, nor is my family. Today, every individual can draw a circle and say, it is not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, who stands in the need of prayer. It's, it's me, Lord, help me to come to terms with those areas of my life that are lived in such willful disobedience that I don't even notice them anymore. The failure to pray, the failure to read my Bible, the failure to come to church, the failure to go home to people who sit at home and choose not to go to church and never to say one word to confront them and to say what you're doing is wrong. The ability to walk around in an office and look at someone who may be using obscene, obscene jokes or saying things that should not be said and listening to that, even laughing along with them rather than saying, you know, God's convicted me about even listening to such things and you profess to be a believer, and a follower of Christ. This doesn't sound like any Christian I know. Lord, we live in a day where we need to come back and be broken for our sin. Lord, forgive us. Right now, allow the blood of Jesus Christ to flow through our life. As we say, Lord, there's some things in my life I need to leave at the altar. Lord, forgive me for not being a good testimony and a witness. Help me, dear Lord, to give up whatever I need to give up to be the man or woman that God you'd have me to be. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.